This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, a cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Welcome to our podcast and uh, MyHeart.net today. Uh, we're focusing on our cardio-oncology series, and we'll discuss CAR-T uh, cell therapy and its cardiovascular effect. And with me today, uh, we have Dr. Amit Mehta, who's um, associate professor at the University of Alabama and Birmingham and director of the lymphoma program, as well as director of the CAR-T program. And from the cardio-oncology field, we have Dr. Carrie Lenneman, um, who is also associate professor at the University of Alabama. So, doctors, thank you very much for taking the time on this beautiful, gorgeous Sunday afternoon. Uh, thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, CAR T or this chimeric antigen receptor T uh, therapy is basically a type of uh, immunotherapy which provided remarkable success in highly refractory and relapsing, relapsing hematological cancer such as lymphoma. And, uh, and leukemias. Today, we'll try to discuss a little bit what is CAR-T cell therapy, how it's performed from being a patient's perspective, how effective is it in fighting this cancer. We'll discuss some of the side effects and particularly the, the well-renowned cytokine release syndrome, which kind of uh, became famous again uh, during the pandemic. And then finally, we'll discuss some of the cardiovascular effect of CAR-T and how we take, we can mitigate it. So I'd like to start with you, Amit, um, if you could explain uh, a little bit, what is CAR-T cell therapy? Thank you for that question. And um, if you go back uh, probably 10 or 15 years ago, uh, that was probably the era of changing treatment for oncology. So oncology, you know, when I went in oncology, most of the people would say that, hey, you know, this is a chemotherapy doctor, right? Things change when the immunotherapy started to knock on the door um, and very and proven to be very, very effective. It started with monoclonal antibody therapy. And then there were multiple ways that people start to think whether we can bring in or engage the immunotherapy more uh, to fight the cancer. Now, CAR-T therapy a step further. So CAR-T therapy addresses a question right at the T-cell level. So what happens in CAR-T, if you just look at the concept that the patient's T cells are harvested, what it means is the patient, they get a line and they're connected to a machine we call as apheresis machine. In a simple term, it is a machine like a dialysis machine. And through that, the patient's blood is blown through and the T cells are collected. The rest of the blood goes back into the patient. Now these T cells are very, very valuable this is the source of the immune system in anybody. These T cells then they are sent to a commercial laboratory where they are uh, stimulated, expanded. And on the surface of these T cells, there is a specific receptor which are expressed. Uh, for years, people have done this in the lab for a wide variety of reasons. Now this is done commercially for a specific protein which is expressed only in cancers, cancer cells. Currently, most of the T cells, they express what I call as an antenna on them. That antenna detects a protein called a CD19 on the B cell. 
there is a other set of antenna which are also being uh, uh, produced and they are called as BCMA protein, which is present on a multiple myeloma uh, patient's uh, cell. Once these T cells are ready, they're shipped back to the center for infusion in the patients. Now, these are all patients' own T cell. That's why we call it autologous. And these T cells are ready to fight. So as soon as they're infused in, these antennas help them find the receptor or protein present on specific cancer cell and immediately start attacking it. So now we have kind of prepared soldiers of your own immune system, which are infused back in you. Now, as they're your own, they actually last for 10 years in the system, technically detecting and killing the cancers. So for, for the patient, um, let's say, for example, I'm a patient and I have a multiple myeloma. Uh, do I have to be prepped before I get this uh, CAR T therapy? What does it involve? I mean, I, I go visit you and you say you offer me the CAR T um, cell therapy. What does it mean in terms of uh, time and coming to the hospital and so forth? That's a great question. So the CAR T cell therapy uh, was approved over a period of last uh, four years. Uh, there are multiple CAR Ts and multiple indications approved. So I say the process starts when I see the patient. So first step is identify the patient, that the patient is good enough. And we are going to talk about further the toxicities and as you mentioned in the cardiac side effect, right? So we want to make sure that the patient is fit enough. Second, as this is commercially available, there are multiple steps involved for the approval. As you know that most of the oncology treatments are very, very expensive. And CAR-T, one infusion, may cost up to half a million dollars. So what happens is once I see the patient, I want to make sure that their insurance or Medicare uh, approves it. So you have to be on label, as FDA described, that this is the uh, label for this particular CAR-T. Say for lymphoma, you have to fail two lines of therapy. For myeloma, you have to fail four lines of therapy. So you, we make sure that you're on label and you're fit enough. At that time, the CAR-T team gets engaged um, and they start you know, getting the approvals. The insurance approval itself is not sufficient because the cost is very high. Most of the institution, they go for what we call as case-based agreement with the insurance, right? So you have one contract uh, through insurance companies to cover XYZ. As this is a higher amount, that is a separate contract that goes into um, uh, effect. That means that the money transaction will happen through the institution. Once that is done, the third step, you want to make sure that the patient has an appointment for not only line placement, but collection of the T-cell, right? So we want to make sure that our center, the apheresis unit, they have an opening so that the patient can be scheduled. Now, we have to align that date of collection with the commercial laboratory's data of receipt, right? So we collect, but we want to make sure that they are also ready at the other end and the, the commercial facility could be all over the U.S. They could be in Northeast, they could be in West Coast. So you want to make sure that they are ready and they have machines available to kind of process those cells. So as you can see that collection itself at our institution is not important. We have to make sure that whole supply knows that these cells are going to be traveling through them. So once this all steps are made, then the collection is done, right? Once the collection is done, then we are on a wait game till the cells are ready and come back. That's when we start planning for what we call as chemotherapy. The, the whole intent of that chemotherapy, we, we call as lympho 
depleting chemotherapy. Uh, what do we do by that chemotherapy is we lower the T cells in patient's body. So the patient's body is hungry to get more T cell and that's when we infuse the T cells in them. So there are multiple checkpoints that we want to make sure and the staff, you know, right from the clinic uh, to all the way to commercial lab, they're all trained, highly specialized, and they exactly know what to do with the cells. Well, Don, and how effective is the, the therapy? I mean, we, we talked about, you know, these are cancer that are you know, pretty advanced a lot of times. Uh, you know, what is the chance of success? What kind of results are we getting at six months, at a year? And are they, are some patients getting resistance to that treatment? That's a great question. So this therapy, they're specifically indicated in a relapsed cancer, right? So right now we have um, lymphomas. Uh, there are uh, different kinds of lymphomas where this treatment is approved. Diffuse large piece of lymphoma, follicular lymphoma, uh, mantle cell lymphoma uh, in multiple myeloma, uh, those who have failed multiple lines of therapy, as well as acute lymphoblastic leukemia. These are the, the cancers where this treatment is approved. Now, if the cancer comes back, these are the cancers which are not only refractory, or they're smart enough that they have learned to progress over the conventional therapy that we offer. So there are multiple, what we call as benchmark uh, retrospective analysis are done, but how these patients do. And this therapy, the newer therapy, they're compared with that benchmark analysis. It is just like, uh, I would say that if you, if you have say I want to uh, test a car which is faster and more effective than a current car, then what you do is, okay, well, we have a gas car. Let's see how far and how much mileage it gives. And then we have a new car that we compare with that. And the new car, car T, I call it, say Tesla of the, the therapy, right? So that's how you compare. Well, the gas prices are pretty high. So now we get a more mileage with Tesla. So similarly, those studies are done in with the conventional therapies and the new CAR-T therapy were compared to them. And if you look at those studies, the effectiveness is pretty good. Um, and one year survival, typically I say is 50% that these patients are alive at one year. Previously, with the conventional therapy, the hope was very, very low compared to what, what we have achieved. Still, the flip side is true, that 50% will progress on CAR-T, and right now, there are multiple studies ongoing to explore why and how the cancer learned to bypass the attack of CAR-T. Uh, you know, as I said, that they're, they're lasting in your body for more than 10 years. And if it is not effective, they learn to bypass that. And we need to know how they're doing it so that we can improve upon the one that we have currently. Are there some combination with other... Uh, types of chemotherapy or immunotherapy actually in some of these patients that develop a resistance or, or non-response? So that's, you know, I would say that once we knew about CAR-T, that how we can produce CAR-T, right now there is an explosion of the clinical trial related to novel um, approaches, right? So um, at, at my center, we have next generation CAR-T also, there are CAR NK. So I, I highlighted the T cells are removed. Now we are removing the natural killer cells and preparing them. The other limiting step is that, as I mentioned, that we collect the cells and send to the laboratory to prepare. So there is a time lag between, you know, somewhere between three to four weeks. People are start to already started to thinking, 
whether we can have the cells ready. So we are collecting and harvesting cells from say cord blood and then expanding them in a different cell lines and preparing them already. So they're already available on, on the shelf. Then the combination therapy, as you mentioned, that the different kind of immunotherapies are combined with the CAR T, interleukins are combined with the cell therapy to see whether we can even uh, expand the attack on the cancer cell. So I assume that in next five years, we will have novel approaches, novel therapies, novel combination with, I call it cell therapy. It's no more T cell therapy. It's like various kinds of immune cell therapies that we are, we are in, you know, right now experimenting that five years from now, things will be completely different. Pretty amazing. Well, I'd like to get Terry involved a little bit because I'm sure uh, she gets some calls sometimes from some of the patients regarding getting uh, uh, the uh, CAR T cell therapy. And if we could start talking about maybe some of the side effects. Um, uh, and, and Terry, you're willing to, I mean, please kind of chime in, you know, whenever sure. you feel like yeah. and admit as well. So you have a patient, uh, what kind of side effects are we, uh, do we see actually in clinical practice and patient receiving this type of therapy? Sure. I mean, sort of the, the biggest side effect that we usually end up dealing with is the cytokine release syndrome, like as we're using CAR T, the immune system's getting revved up to sort of attack the cancer, which is great. It's doing its response, but it can almost become hyperimmune where you have this mass release of various uh, different interleukins, which can then unfortunately cause cytokine release syndrome, which is almost a vasodilatory response, similar to what we see hemodynamically with sepsis. Um, so patients can become hypotensive, tachycardic. They can develop sort of acute pulmonary edema, um, they can uh, also uh, have issues with um, significant shortness of breath. Um, so these are these are patients can become hemodynamically unstable very quickly. So we commonly, as we're monitoring these patients, we'll be looking for signs and symptoms of early cytokine release syndrome and try to mitigate that with just supportive measures if possible. But obviously, there are um, therapies that can help sort of calm down and sort of dampen the hyperimmune response. I think COVID has made us all a little more familiar with that, at least um, as many of us have heard of tocilizumab, which helps sort of dampen sort of the immune response um, that can happen with cytokine release syndrome. The other thing that I think is also important to talk about is that medicine, this is a very complex orchestration, and this is really for sort of the select patient that is identified and, and it's, a, it's a huge investment, both on the patient and unfortunately, as far from a financial standpoint. So we want to make sure patients are um, optimally selected so that they do well and that they don't have a poor outcome. They don't develop severe cytokine release syndrome and shock and die. So commonly, sometimes we will also get referrals for patients to make sure they're, they're fit enough, just like we were talking about early, earlier, that some patients can actually look really good on paper and even really good in the clinic. But then when you start doing some sort of pre-CAR-T testing, you can realize, oh gosh, they've got severe aortic stenosis. So, you know, things, patients that have significant valvular disease or have significant heart failure, like EF less than 35%, these may not be patients you want to send right on to CAR-T and may need to find, you know, um, some temporizing measures until you can either, you know, fix or mitigate the cardiovascular issues 
or that might um, unfortunately just deem them un- ineligible for um, CAR-T. So we often also will get patients seen in our clinic because they've had an abnormality, whether it's abnormal echo, whether they have significant valvular disease or even significant coronary disease history to make sure that again, they've had coronary disease, maybe they've been bypassed, you know, are they stable and fit enough to sort of um, get through a sepsis-like hemodynamic response? So, so you describe obviously the the cytokine release you know, syndrome. This is probably where where you have hypoxia, and hypo, severe hypotension, and shock. You know, raised So we have to treat with you know uh, not only fluid but pressors and so forth. Uh, how frequently does that happen versus just a mild form of let's say fever or sometimes just um, you know, kind of a mild response, like it could be hypotensive, but the response to fluid, they still maintain their oxygen. Uh, how frequently do you see that um, dramatic response like CRS? I would chip in in there. So uh, Kerry actually uh, explained it very nicely. Um, the cytokine release syndrome is one of the limiting side effect of such an effective therapy. So you have to have a great team in place. Like, you know, when I at UAB, I'm, I'm glad that Carrie is there. When I send a patient to her, she exactly knows, you know, what, what is going on in my brain and how she can help me. Now, cytokine release syndrome, it differs on a product by product. Some product they have, that is a co-stimulatory domain in the receptor. And there are two of them which are right now existing. One is what we call a CD28, and the other one we call as 41BB. And they both have a little bit different characteristics. So CD28 products tend to expand quicker compared to 41BB, which expands a little bit later. So quicker, meaning that they have CRS earlier rather than 41BB. So those are the patients, as soon as you infuse the cells, you might see it within one to two days, they start having cytokine release syndrome. And historically, what we have seen is that the CD28 products, their rates of CRS are a little bit higher compared to 41BB products, right? Now, the CD28 products, there are multiple mitigation strategies, including adding steroids earlier. There are some studies which are going on, as Gary mentioned, that tocilizumab as a prophylactic, whether we can give it to prevent that. Initially, people were very hesitant because they didn't want to affect the efficacy of CAR-T, right? So they didn't want to do any of these prophylaxis stuff. But now with the liberal use, they are seeing that, well, the toxicity is lower, but at the same time, we are not seeing any compromising effect on the efficacy of this CAR-T. But on an average, you might see like simple as grade one, just a fever in most of the patients, right? But the severe grade three or four, where exactly you described their blood pressure is very low, they're on pressors, they have hypoxic respiratory failure. And as Kerry mentioned, like shock-like picture, that is getting lesser and lesser with all this early recognition, introduction of these prophylactic therapies. And of course, you know, like if there are high-risk patients and we send it to Kerry and we kind of prepare ourselves that this potentially can happen so we are ready. Those old strategies actually helped a lot in reduction of this lethal, so to speak, uh, side effect of this CAR-T. So we bring, uh, we bring about this kind of um, immune reaction with uh, interleukin and so forth, but are there also some kind of direct effect or, or you know, for example, some of the CAR-T has been, has been um, used to treat some melanomas and um, with reports of you know severe hypotension, uh, there are actually some 
misdirected effect, for example, on other, like the heart, for example, uh, or what do we know about some of the different CAR T and their effect? So there is a potential, not only heart, but brain effect. Neurotoxicity is also, we call it as ICANS, immune effector cell therapy associated neurotoxicity, which is also one of the, the lethal side effects. Fortunately, it's not that common. But you know, when we started doing CAR-T at UAB about five or six years ago, at that time, even the grading was not established properly, right? So now the grading is, there is a consensus grading out there. Even the nurses are trained looking at their vitals and making sure that their neurological status are good. And that is an immediate reporting. As a matter of fact, as this both side effects are so lethal that FDA actually has a REMS program into effect. What it means is everybody in the institution should be trained for this. The patient should be aware that this can potentially happen. For CRS, any certified center like UAB, they should have two doses of tocilizumab per patient ready. So as soon as I sign a consent initial visit, our pharmacist put aside two doses per that patient uh, in case that happens. So that is mandatory now. The patients cannot drive for up to two months after the CAR-T infusion. So these are all kind of rules and regulation that FDA has placed in for the safety of CAR-T. And there are some late side effects that we can talk about afterwards. Let's dive in into the cardiovascular effect, uh, Carrie. Um, there's been, you know, it seems like there's some increase uh, in uh, particularly in the patients developing severe hypotension, even some increased incidence of heart failure and cardiomyopathy. What do we know so far, at least from the retrospective study at UPenn? Sure. I mean, so we, we definitely know that, um, again, hypotension and, and the cytokine release syndrome can, can occur. And like I said, a lot of studies have been retrospective before sort of our, our newer, um, newer, more standardized way of a pre-evaluating patients and then two also having a really consensus of the cytokine release syndrome and severity. So, you know, I think data that we when we look back, it's probably not completely accurate of, of what we're seeing today, but but still very valid and, and something to learn from. So again, I, you know, I do think it's really important now that we pre-evaluate our patients and making sure they have appropriate cardiovascular diagnostic testing to sort of get through a sepsis-like event where it's hypotension, where you're going to have to have pretty aggressive volume resuscitation um, and, and make sure we're not dealing with anyone who's got, you know, pretty significant valvular disease or kind of, you know, concerning for three vessel or left main disease before they go into this, to, to this process. So understanding their cardiovascular and coronary disease history is super, super important. I think that keeps us out of trouble um, a little bit for sure. And then lastly, you know, we do see stress-induced cardiomyopathies in these patients. It it's probably goes along with this, these neurologic events or something related to the brain and the heart where we see a lot of Takotsubo. Um, luckily, when we see the Takotsubo process, most of this has been supportive care where we can get patients through this, just like what we see with stress-induced cardiomyopathies. Um, we support these patients and then commonly put them on um, guideline-directed medical therapy for heart failure. And a lot of times the LV function recovers. So that has been a promising thing that we have seen. Um, and we don't really fully understand it. It's you know obviously similar, similar to Takasuba where we think it's probably a, really, a dramatic release of, of stress hormones that, that occur at that time. But, um, but it's good to know, see that there's pretty significant recovery. So it really looks like the, the heart team approach here, the, the combination of the oncologists, the cardio-oncologists, the 
interventional cardiologist is really important and plays a, a very important role in following these patients. Uh, prospectively, now, what do you do? I mean, obviously, it looks like you're really very much involved from the very beginning, evaluating these patients, ruling out coronary disease, uh, ruling out uh, uh, cardiomyopathy, because a lot of these patients have received already radiation uh, treatment. They've received agiomycin a lot of times, so you evaluate their heart function. You get them ready for their CAR T treatment. What do you do prospectively? How do you follow these patients after the treatment and how frequently do we evaluate them? A great, great question. We, you know, obviously it sort of depends on, on what happens. You know, we've seen some patients where we evaluate them sort of pre-CAR-T and find out they have um, severe aortic stenosis. So we end up sending them for TAVR and, and then that sort of, you know, falls into typical kind of post-TAVR assessment, usually getting an echo three, six, and then one year to kind of follow those patients. But I think you're exactly right. Then there are other patients who have been very heavily pre-treated with various forms of chemotherapy, like anthracyclines, um, who come in and maybe their EF's kind of low normal, 50, 55%. Then you're going to want to follow those patients more closely. You may have deemed that they're adequate for CAR-T because they've got good functional status and they probably had good hemodynamics on last right heart cath or non-invasive studies by ECHO showing they've got great stroke volume. And And so in those patients, you may just say, okay, well, you know, after you get through the the CAR-T, I want to see you back in three months in an ECHO and make sure if you can have them on good medical therapy before they go through um, the CAR-T. Again, you know, kind of focusing on specifically maybe beta blockers, plus or minus ACE inhibitors, if you think they can tolerate that, although we probably do pull back on some of those while we begin the initiation of CAR-T because of the hypotension. Certainly, um, CAR-T has is, is really been an exciting breakthrough in cancer treatment, uh, expanding also to uh, you know, multiple indications, including even solid tumors. Um, how, do you feel, how do you see the field evolving amid, um, in the future, and, and uh, what should we be looking you know, forward to in the next four or five years? No, I, I think you... You mentioned it right. The CAR-T application is expanding quite a bit and solid tumors is on the horizon right now. There are multiple studies ongoing. As a matter of fact, in the, in the history of oncology, uh, you know, it, it just not CAR-T, but cell therapy in particular, there are so many studies, hundreds of studies are right now ongoing. There are so many smaller biotech companies that are experimenting different cell therapies. So next five years, things will be different and it will be more cell therapy based approach. And in that, um, I usually highlight the importance of a a team approach, um, like we just discussed upon, that not only just oncologists, so cardiologists and neurologists, even ICU team, BMT team, all of them, they have to come together as a team to take care of the patients. We all should be on the same page. So that's one. And second, critical is the experience of the center, which is also a very apparent now to identify some of the special side effects of these patients and address them uh, as early as possible to avoid uh, the severe complications. So these are the two main things that will emerge in next five years with these novel therapies. And of course, as we already saw in you know recent publication that the patients with cancers, they're living uh, longer and longer. Um, so in other words, we will have longer follow-up of these novel therapies and more issues will emerge. And especially we saw in a COVID pandemic that the infection was one of the uh, side effect of these therapies, technically creating a cell to attack B cells, depleting your immune uh, system. 
So these patients are very high risk of infection going forward, secondary cancers. And as you mentioned with prior therapies, uh, they might have you know, cardiac side effect, not only immediate, but delayed. So all of this is kind of evolving, but I do see that in the next five years, the cancer treatment will completely change. I think it's, that's a good stopping point, you know, right there being called called to the hospital. <laughs> so, Amit Mitta and uh, Carrie Lenneman, I really want to thank you for a, uh, taking the time to really talk about CAR T, you know, cell therapy and, and our patients. Very enlightening. And the future is bright for, you know, cancer treatment. Uh, and uh, and we can see how we can kind of work closely together for the next several years. Thank you very much. Thank Dr. you. Thank Appreciate it. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.